Let's rock and roll. Hello and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, episode 80. I'm Rory and I'm joined by some other nerds, Ryan. Hello. And Carissa. Hello. Together we take on this week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now. Go and read your week's comics books and then come back. Each week one of us picks their favorite book and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week the pick of the week goes to Champions number 10. Our companion song is All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix because I thought that it was a really good companion song for the subject matter which we're about to get into. I agree. I think it fits really well actually for the for the issue. Let's take a listen. <laughs> Must be some kind of way out of here. Said a joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. So we've got Champions number 10, Marvel Comics, written by Mark Wade, pencils by Umberto Ramos, inks by Victor Olaplaza, colors by Edgar Delgado. Pretty good lineup. Yeah, really good lineup. I was noticing that when I was first starting this one off. So with the Champions this week, what we have is it starts off in like this little uh, suburban town, and there's this mailman, and he's talking to this lady, and like, oh, here's your mail. Oh, at least there aren't any bills. And she's like... Like, no, there never are. And then across the street, there are these two kids that are in this house, and one of them is like a ghost kid. They're making some sort of nefarious plan that they don't clarify. He's like, oh, you know, you could draw their fire because they can't touch you, and you can ghost out while I fly away. And then the mailman comes up, and they're like, oh, how much did you hear about that, Mr. Green? And of course, I think it's because he looks like Wilford Brimley, so he automatically has to be evil. <laughs> Wilford Brimley mailman busts out this giant giant robo arm at first i was like oh no are they bringing in the weapon x series into the secret empire storyline i'm like oh no crossover that's what i thought too <laughs> that's exactly what it looks like that's what i thought too i was like oh no wilford brimley weapon x blasts these two kids with like a torch and then he tells the lady across the street i think you better go inside for a while don't you think and then she knocks on the door and she's like kamala do you hear me come out nothing will happen there's a voice from inside that goes no she's refusing to come out so then we flash forward to the temporary headquarters of the champions where they're looking for Ms. Marvel. They've lost her and trying to find her because they're two people down so they absolutely need her help. They're tying it more into Secret Empire here, I feel like. Yes. Previous stuff in Champions maybe wasn't as tied into it and now they're kind of catching up with Nova being on the other side of that wall yeah. and then... Cyclops is with the X-Men. Yeah. They're two people down right there. They're looking to get as many hands as they can. So Viv is scrolling through the dark web but Hydra is completely gone over the entire internet and tried to uh, lock it down a la North Korea style. It looks like she has a uniform. She has her own outfit, kind of, in this one. Did not notice that, actually, now that you point that out. So, Viv, for like a split second, because she's even having trouble decoding what's going on across the internet. So, for a split second, she gets a hold of this compound that's weird. It was supposed to be used to prison in humans. And so, it turns out, by twist of fate, that Cho, he was the one that helped design it. So, he kind of explains what 
what goes on with it. And so what he did was he was the person who helped. They were trying to build it so that they could build a place to hold Bruce Banner where he would be able to stay and hang out. They could have him imprisoned, but keep him from getting angry so that he could kind of like live out a peaceful life. It's like Pleasant Hill Jr. Reminds me a lot of Pleasant Hill. Yes, basically the same idea. So Cho had helped S.H.I.E.L.D. design these Wilford Brimley bots that were designed to be... Super polite. Super polite and nice so that they didn't give anything that would piss Banner off. They're all like the neighbor characters from 1950s sitcoms. Yeah. Very friendly and inoffensive characters. Very much so. So they go to this compound and decide that they're going to break in. And so their plan is kind of interesting because... Cho basically is like, oh, I could smash a hole in the wall. Viv, you can pretty much make yourself invisible. Spider-Man, you can go invisible, so we should be able to do this pretty easily. And so they bust in, and then he rips open one of the Wilford Brimley bots and uses their operating system to short out all the rest of them. Which, incidentally, not just the guard robots, but it also short out all the NPCs, I guess would be the best word for it. All the, like, Wilford Brimley town folk? <laughs> yeah, all the town folks that aren't just guards. I did fucking laugh my ass off, though, at all the, like, military guys, because they're all the same robot. They just have different yeah. programming in their little commando yeah. uniforms. It was pretty funny. It's like that Doctor Who episode where the master takes over everyone. They all look like the actor Sims, and he's just, like, talking to himself. Very, you know, being John Malkovich-esque. <laughs> Matt will understand it. He knows. <laughs> <laughs> so the champions bust in, and and all of a sudden they're faced with all the Inhumans that have been imprisoned in this camp. They're just kind of like standing there like looking at them. They know that the military is coming real quick. They've got like 24 minutes to evacuate the entire town. So they're like, oh, let's find Ms. Marvel and she'll help us out. And so Spider-Man jumps up to the top of this telephone pole and it's like, has anybody seen Ms. Marvel? He starts describing her and stuff and somebody goes, oh, Kamala. And he's like, oh yeah, that might be her, which I didn't realize this, but I guess nobody knew her actual real name. <laughs> It's her secret identity. It's not like Tony Stark and Iron Man, but everybody knows that he's one and the same. Yeah, I just, I figured the champions knew what her real identity was, but I guess not. They do. He just doesn't want to say that, yes, Miss Marvel's name is Kamala. Oh, I got you. He's keeping her cover. Right. So anyways, the lady from earlier leads Miles into her house, and in her closet is this girl who is also named Kamala, who is dressed like Ms. Marvel because she's dressing like that just to like kind of keep herself strong and stuff. Cough. Playing. Basically. Oh man, that little picture broke my heart of her in the closet, kind of curled up in the corner. She's got a little towel cape on her. Yeah, stitched on. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it looks Terry Cloth, yeah. Yeah, because Kamala, Miss Marvel gives her strength when she thinks about her, so she's trying to stay brave. Yeah, Miles is, hey, we can get you out of here and just follow our lead. And then they come out and all the Inhumans are fighting because it's like half of them want to go and know that they got to go like right now. And then the other half want to stay, but they're afraid that if they stay and the other people leave, well, then they're going to get executed as punishment. So there's like this big fight that breaks out. The ones who want to stay, they're afraid that if they go out into the world, they're going to be hunted again by Hydra and yes. they've got kids with them. And here at least they're kind of safe. Exactly. Kamala whispers something to Miles and then he's like, oh, that's a good idea. And then Cho, Miles, Kamala and Viv go up 
to the control room and what they do is they wire up Viv to the entire base and run the electricity through her so she could use her little holographic ability and they cloak the entire town when the military goes flying by and so that kind of buys them some time and so it turns out that this Kamala who is not Kamala that we're familiar with ends up being like the hero of the day because it kind of like buys the people time to actually think out a plan on okay what do we want to do I like this one because it was interesting story it, once again it's like Champions isn't just all about smashing heads and bangs and pow and all that stuff it's like they just come up with interesting angles on story I feel like they're more relevant to modern day storytelling and the art is obviously top notch look at our lineup here that's really what got me on this one you know just generally like Champions is just a great series would y'all think I said this before about Champions I really think it's coming to its own for a new series to come out the gate so strong I find it really impressive I like the whole you know, not always fighting like they kind of like approach things like don't fight harder think smarter kind of thing and they really take other approaches stuff it was a really interesting twist that Cho had to go against something that he created it's that kind of responsibility for your actions things like oh it came back and kind of bit him in the ass as it were I like how they showcase Viv growing to be one of my favorites I think I have a lot of the Secret Empire this little spin-off side piece is probably one of my favorites I know you guys really find the main story going on a little bit more epic but I really like this piece I'm a big Champions fan I like that kind of younger vibe and it feels fresh like a kind of a fresh approach you said the secret empire story is really epic and that's true but sometimes you can lose the human element in it the personal in it and here you see people who are directly personally affected by this you see children being murdered you see that image of kamala cowering in the closet and that's a really good strong image it reminds you that people are suffering under the rule of the secret empire you know it's not just superheroes punching each other in the face that i think this is trying to show you some real world consequences and i also like that it makes a pretty strong argument here that everyone you know no matter who they are or what they look like or those kind of things that they need heroes that look like them that this girl when she's in her darkest moment an hour of need she can reach out to a character that she can empathize with that she can use the totemic power of miss marvel to give her strength i think that's really important in comics and i think miss marvel is a really good example of that i also really like that viv knows that the electricity is going to really hurt her when they use it for her that it's going to fry her and she's going to feel pain but she's like i know this and i still choose to do this yeah. she's willing to sacrifice yeah. she doesn't have a lot of emotions about it because she's still a robot but she still experiences pain and is willing to sacrifice for people i really like this i thought this was really really good i also like the frustration they have that the problem is not simple it's not something you can just punch in the face that both sides have a point of what they're trying to say they're able to give them time to think and to come up with a solution and again that the champions do not solve people's problems for them we saw that before when they went to that place to like liberate those girls in the Middle East, that they create the space for people to solve their own problems, that they don't superhero punch their way into moral dilemmas and solve them. So I think it's pretty strong. Uh, totally agree. Let's rape this bitch. You know, honestly, champions can't do any fucking wrong with me. At least they haven't yet. That's for damn sure. So I'm going to give this four and a half Wilford Brimley bots. You <laughs> <laughs> isn't quite as Wilford Brimley as the Superman Wilford Brimley. Very true. Very true. I give it four. Is that the new uniform i will give it four and a half we know you are our champions i really liked it it was uplifting and gave some hope in the darkness and i've got the exact opposite <laughs> so i'm taking this over <laughs> to dc for batman number 26 from dc comics the war of jokes and riddles part two written by tom king pencils and inks by mikhail janin colors by june chung this is some dark shit 
Just a little. That's pretty much what I was going to sum up. It's really, really well done. I am in completely in love with the War of Jokes and Riddles storyline. I think it's fucking amazing and epic, but you should know going into this that you're in for a dark story that has tons of murder and the destruction of the innocent here. Essentially, this is a story that takes place after Batman Year One. So this is like Year Two Batman. So he's pretty new, and the crux of the problem is that the Joker cannot laugh anymore. He doesn't find anything amusing. So he's going around trying to find things that are funny. And what's funny to the Joker is homicidal chaos. <laughs> so he's on these terrorist murder sprees throughout the city trying to find things that make him laugh, but nothing is making him laugh. And the Riddler is in opposition to him because he's figured out what the Joker is doing and why he's doing it. And he knows that what the Joker thinks would be the funniest thing of all is to kill the Batman. But the Riddler is trying to figure out the Batman. So if neither one of them can win, if one of them wins, then the other loses. So they're, that's why they're in conflict with each other. And in the last issue, the Joker shot the Riddler and we kind of see that carry over into this a little bit. So it kind of opens up with the Joker in a cab going to a house out in the, the Burbs to 69 Dick Sprang Way which is kind of a funny name <laughs> and Dick Sprang is also a classic Batman Golden Age artist so a little kind of tribute there <laughs> in a way but it's really fucking chilling here these panels they do right at the beginning where they talk about how the two people who live there they moved to Gotham a year ago and then you see like the bang bang from the Joker executing them. And then they have this panel where they're like, and they're three children. And then you get bang, 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 where he kills the kids, which you don't see on panel, yeah. but it's pretty fucking ominous and chilling. Yeah. And then the Batman is listening to a news report of the cab driver who drove the Joker there, got dosed with Joker venom and ends up just not being able to stop laughing. And then he dies. So he's off to kind of investigate that. And then you get a scene that I think is kind of like a tribute to the Batman 89, where the Joker is having the plastic surgery done, where you have the Riddler getting patched up from when the Joker shot him and the plastic surgeon is this kind of doctor who sold some drugs on the side and lost his medical license now he has to work for criminals and that's one thing that this story really drives home is the personal in this that all of the victims of the Joker and the Riddler and their war you get to know them as people so they don't just become faceless numbers and you'll see that repeated a lot in here so the Riddler has a gunshot wound in his stomach that's his scar so it's really creepy he takes this shard of glass or scalpel and starts carving on his chest the question mark with the gunshot wound being the dot at the bottom. Yeah. It's really fucking creepy. And of course he tells one of his riddles in there, which he does that a few times throughout this issue. So then Gordon and Batman show up because the Riddler kills the guy afterwards. And if you look in the background panels, you can actually see he's drawn question marks and blood all along the walls. He's left his calling cards there, so there's no doubt about who did this. And then you get the Joker listening to, again, to a radio broadcast describing what the Riddler has now done. It's a really creepy weird panel once you realize what's happening because it's the Joker staring into a mirror and making faces into the mirror mm -hmm. like funny faces like trying to make himself laugh which is just looks homicidal and disturbed it's very very creepy what he's doing very Joker yes <laughs> yeah because he's doing all the funny faces right but his eyes aren't smiling <laughs> you know his no. eyes are unhappy murder throughout the whole thing he looks so angry in all this and it's just like oh that's Joker right there <laughs> well that's the thing that I like about this is Tom King is really able to show you the monsters that these characters are. That they're not just amusing characters who are criminal foils to Batman. That these are psychopathic murderers who are extremely, extremely dangerous. Yeah. So the Joker contacts Carmine Falcone. He tells him, you've got an hour to kill the Riddler. So you find the Riddler and Poison Ivy strolling through the woods and these mobsters show up from Carmine Falcone and are going to kill him. And the Riddler is telling Poison Ivy that the Joker is going to 
to scorch the earth, that that's kind of his philosophy and what he's promised to do. And if he does that, then all the plants and stuff that she cares about are going to die. So you can start to see the beginning of both the Joker and the Riddler recruiting all of these other monsters onto their side here. So the mobsters are there to kill the Riddler. They're trying to convince Poison Ivy to like step to the side so she doesn't get shot. And she ends up animating all the trees and vines and stuff to like rip them apart and strangle them. While they're hanging from all these trees and stuff, the Riddler and Poison Ivy are just kind of like strolling through the garden of earthly terrors that they've created. <laughs> talking about like riddles and things like that. It's really, really pretty creepy. Yes. And again, this is where you get more of the fact that Batman is kind of powerless in the face of all of this chaos and evil. He can't stop it. So really the only thing he can do is remember the people who died. So each person that dies, you get a little bit about them. So even these mobsters are not one-dimensional when Batman starts remembering them. That some of them volunteer at their church and they do things beyond just being mobsters. And he explains why they came into Carmine's service. That some of them might have been trying to get money for medical treatments for like their mother or things like that. So it's kind of interesting to see Batman doing this, remembering who they are. And there's the scene where you get where he's chopping down all the stuff that Poison Ivy has made with an axe, freeing all of the dead bodies. To me, I feel like it's a good way of showing his powerlessness against what's happening here. So obviously, Carmine Falcone did not kill the Riddler like the Joker ordered him to. So this is where it gets really fucking creepy. <laughs> so the Joker is sitting in his office and he has these teeth spread out in front of him. And he tells them that these are your mother's teeth and I ripped them out of her head and I've made a smile with them. And then they're like, well, wait a minute. She lives in, in Metropolis and Metropolis is three hours away. So obviously he did this long before he called him in the first place. There's just something about teeth. It's just really creepy to see him lining them up like that and making them into a smile. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. So he shoots all of Carmine's guys except for one guy who kind of looks like the penguin, but it's not the penguin. It's got a former linebacker that's going to be his liaison to Carmine. And again, with Batman remembering all of the victims, you get him standing over the body of Carmine Falcone's mother and telling about her story of coming to America and nine of her ten kids went on to become doctors and lawyers and really respectable, but the, the tenth one, Carmine, became a criminal and when she found out about it, she spit in his face and left Gotham. And she's lying in this pool of blood that Batman is standing in. It's a pretty effective panel showing you what the Joker can do when he sets out to it. And then you get this awesome two-page spread showing all of the DC villains that are going to line up on each side facing off against each other. It's a really cool two-page spread. I really, really like it. And you'll probably get to see each of them get recruited onto the sides and why they've chosen to do this. But there's this narration over it where Batman's talking about how I've been the Batman for a little over a year at this point and people are giving me different names. They're calling me, you know, I was brave, I was bold, I was a superhero, I was the world's greatest detective. But in all of this, he's still completely powerless to stop them. And you have this wall behind him. I think this is one of the better panels I've seen in that these people that they're drawing as the victims, they don't look like comic book people. They actually look like real people to me mm -hmm. that are in the background. And you get their name and their age and who killed them. And it's a really effective panel of Batman just standing against all of these people who have died in this war. Telling the story to Catwoman because he needs to kind of unburden this great failing that he's had that he wasn't able to stop this. So I love this. I thought it gave you really good insights into characters. It was dark and creepy and disturbing. It was violent and truly disturbing. What'd you guys think of it? I personally think the Riddler has a better lineup. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Solomon Grundy, Mr. Freeze. Yeah, but he has Clayface and Killer Croc and Calendar Man. I like the Riddler's lineup. It was really dark. There's great panels. I totally thought that was a penguin too. Yeah, I thought this one was great. It's funny because I always talk about with the Joker, he's not really like a funny character. He's actually really frightening. A, because he's unpredictable, but B, he's not just crazy. It's one of the things that I always said about the new run of Batman movies with Heath Ledger. I was just talking about this the other night. I understand what they were doing with that character. They were trying to show more what a 
a real life Joker would be like. But that's the thing that I think is so frightening about Joker. It's not just that he's crazy because he's not just completely insane. He's actually malicious and evil and violent. And I think that's what I keep getting the feel with this. Like every single page where you see him, it's just like you could see Joker's anger coming out. And it's fucking brutal and frightening, honestly. You're also seeing a different side of the Riddler, the more vicious side of the Riddler also. It's just really interesting. I hadn't seen the previous issue. This was a new jump in to me. And man, I'm excited. My only complaint with this is I wanted so much more. (laughs) It felt like such a fast read through. And so that's the only thing I have to complain about it. And that's not really a complaint as much. Damn, I just want more. (laughs) Yeah, it's spectacular. It really is. I think last time we reviewed it, Matt and I were talking about how this is going to take its place alongside the great Batman stories. This is truly something special. I definitely think so. I really like when you come along in series like that and you just kind of, you realize what's happening and like in that way where you realize this is going to be a really great memorable run. Kind of like how we were talking with Doctor Strange, you know, the last one. Right. Where you can see something, you're like, this is epicness happening right before my eyes. <laughs> Yeah. But damn it, I have to wait a few weeks. (laughs) So I think I will give this soon-to-be classic five What Do Mayflowers Bring? That's really funny because I was going to give it four and a half pilgrims. (laughs) I'm going to give it five scorched earths. All right. Take us over to a little comedy here, Carissa. From dark to not so serious. <laughs> That's me. Rat Queens, number four, Image Comics. Images of Tomorrow, written by Curtis J. Weeb, by Owen Dienny. Rat Queens Incorporated, written by Kyle Charles and Sweeney Boo. Aw, Sweeney Boo. You have a cool <laughs> name. Yay, Rat Queens. You might remember. I'll refresh your memory. They were taking a job and did this treacherous adventure up a mountainside only to find Violet's brother and... And his pals already there and they were infuriated so this is where we pick up we find out that they didn't hike up there and beat them in that traditional way they used their old dilapidated wizard man to teleport them to the top of the mountain and that's how they beat them this is pretty interesting it has a lot of classic dungeon crawl tropes but there's a little insight between violet and her brother you get a little bit more backstory about how she left and why and their relationship which i thought was a nice little touch i like that we see betty has like her weird photographic memory or just things that from her stoner mind work. <laughs> Betty ain't no fool. <laughs> she recites the whole posting and she's like, and this is something about a devil horn tree? It might be that? And she like points to it and sure enough, it's this tree with some wicked horns. They go on a dungeon crawl. Like you hear all the talk about evil temples and like ones they've experienced before. This one has some weird sexy animal creatures at the gates, you know, like rabbit head and frog with boobs. It's kind of weird. Not gonna lie, it's weird. As Rory likes to call him Egon. <laughs> He's like, oh, Oh, it takes a finite amount of thinking stuff to figure it out. The door is this puzzle trap that they have to disarm. And he was all excited about it. And then Hannah being Hannah is like, nope, kaboom, and blows a hole inside the wall. And that's how they get in. And he's just like, oh, you desecrated it. I'm not going to work with you ruffians. The cat kings decide just to take off, which is great. Because then we're just back to the queens and they're doing their thing. You get a little bit of Hannah's more of her family. There's a lot of like old family talk about like their past and their growing up with each of them. Well, except for like Betty. So I thought that was kind of neat talked about her mom doing demons and stuff but that's how it goes but you know it's very back to the tropes for D&D it's very oh don't touch that it'll set off a trap that giant crystal and and then we get the classic monster chest I think everyone has experienced one of those at some time the mimic yeah but this one they decide to become friends with because they feel sorry for it being left alone and it's working their contract and so they talk about it they apologize it explains to them the adventure ahead so they're a little bit one-upped on it <laughs> I mean they befriend the chest 
best. It's pretty <laughs> funny. It has attitude and talks to them and looks sad. I thought that was really cute. I totally thought that was hilarious. And like the weird trap and they're like, go for it. And it's like, hmm, looking at all the traps. It's like, can you just magic that shit over here? <laughs> they bypass the whole thing. Oh, I dug that too. Yeah. Like, yep, that's the way to do it. Yep. And then it ends with that weird portal mirror, which they had a lot of those at the Sorcery Academy from the run before. Hannah went in one. That's how she saw was talking to her parents and stuff. This is not the exact same thing, but it's that kind of same idea. When they go through, they end up in this weird watercolor pastel world, but in the past. It's very strange. And then they're talking to a younger, smaller Betty. I just love how it just ends with Hannah saying, holy fuck. <laughs> 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 the artwork's really great with this weird watercolor pastel. I mean, it's really pretty, but it's definitely not typical Rat Queens whatsoever. So it's some interesting. I'm not sure if it's an alternate reality, if they really got sucked into the past or what. I get a kick out of the classic kind of dungeon crawl references. What'd you think? Oh my God, I cracked up so hard when I was reading this one. Especially during their little temple crawl and stuff like that. She's like, oh, hey, look what I found. It's 10 times worth what we got paid for the job. And they're like, no way, man, that's the trap. Hey, put it in the ground. And then that turns out to be the trap. Yeah, she just stole it in the first yeah, place. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the one time that somebody's like, no, 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 we know where this goes. And it turns out to be the exact opposite. Reminds me of a tabletop game where I uh, was uh -huh. playing a halfling thief and I did a total party kill on this exact situation. <laughs> Well, there was a giant altar with a giant gym on it, and I uh, sprung the trap by trying to take the gym and killed everybody. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> that was classic. I don't think anybody was mad at you for that one either, because <laughs> it was just so fucking funny. It was just so, like, trope. Like, I have to do it, you know? Like, yeah. the mimic was really funny. The chest. Complaining totally about people agree. just, like, rip him open and start trying to pull things out from his guts. I love when Betty dick punches the cat <laughs> king. Yeah. I also like when Hannah says that teleportation is for pussies. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I've never seen her so mad. That hat that the orc is wearing is awesome and adorable. It really sets <laughs> off the rest of her outfits. I like it. Yeah, there's all kinds of shit to love in this one, really. The more D&D you've played, the more you will like this. So true. <laughs> if you don't play D&D, it's still going to be a good read. If you do, oh my god, are you in for a treat. Yeah, I think it stands on its own, but if you have your own experiences, you can relate back to what they're doing, then it becomes much, much better. <laughs> we didn't see much of the living fungus guy in this one, though. That guy is so gross. <laughs> you ready to read it? Yep. I'm going to give this four and a half dick punches. <laughs> Aw, you took my... I'll give it three and a half. I will not stand next to children as they desecrate the past with their youth and vigor. I'm going to give it four not-so-obviously trapped gems. So we had our little break with the fun times. So now let's get back into the darkness. We got Baby Teeth, number two, Aftershock Comics, The Prairie Wolf. Written by Donnie Cates. Pencils and inks by Gary Brown. And colors by Mark Englert. This one's kind of funny because they have a lot of flash forwards in this, like temporary, unexplained flash forwards. She has conversations like I do, trying to tell stories. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> that do not follow any logical sense of, of linear time. <laughs> there is logic. You just get excited. You gotta get to the best part. Starts off with this weird little scene where she's hovering over some dude with a collapsing baton. That's her sister. That's her drug dealing sister. Oh, you're right. Okay, her drug dealing sister is beating the hell out of somebody and there's lasers and shit. 
I'm assuming that it's the 80s (laughs) (laughs) or an 80s club. I don't know. (laughs) But then the story flashes back to crying baby. And so Sadie, our main protagonist, is there with her sister. Or is it her aunt? That's her sister. It's the baby's aunt. But she's calling her Aunt Heather. So they're there and baby's having a fit. And she doesn't know what the hell she's doing wrong. And Sadie's sister is like, why don't you fess up on who daddy is? She's like, no, he was immaculately conceived. It's true. And she's like, oh, you're going to stick with that. I mean, you don't really want to tell people that you were dating the devil or at least blinking him, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Might be good in the side, okay? <laughs> Anyways, eventually the dad comes home, so the sister decides to crawl out the window, a la... Clarissa explains it all. Sam used to come in and out of the window. Exactly. So she exits out the window, and then her dad shows up. He's like, oh, was that Heather I heard jumping off the roof? She's like, yeah. He's like, why did she do that? You know? Not necessary. Yeah, because you hate it. <laughs> her dad she tells him he's not eating and all this stuff. And so he's like, yeah, you know, here, let me uh, take over for you. You get some sleep and stuff. And he has this little touching moment where he tells her that he's there with her and he's proud of her and all this stuff. And don't let any doubt cross your mind and stuff. And then tells her to get her ass to sleep, which then she has this weird, I don't know, it's flash forward or what about this group. Basically like the Illuminati. And she says it's like the Illuminati. It's called the the Watcher's Council. Yeah, She makes a weird Buffy reference that she yeah, later on says she doesn't think they would understand. Yeah, there's this weird council that's watching. It's tracked her down based off of the earthquake epicenters. They're arming up their assassins to try and go out and kill the baby. And apparently it's been going on for a while. Which I didn't get. If they're evil, wouldn't they want the Antichrist? Because they're evil and they're all about evilness. They're not evil, though. Well, that's what she's making sound like. They're old, creepy, and evil. Well, they're trying to kill her baby. So to her, <laughs> they seem pretty evil. <laughs> Evil, yes. you know? Yeah, but it's the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, like the people who go after Damien and the Omen, they're not. Are they evil? <laughs> so then we flash forward to somewhere in Texas in a very Texas prototypical scene out in the middle of nowhere with a single wide and a shot to shit piece of shit car is this old guy and he comes out and his, what I assume his daughter is working out to uh, REM. He's like, I don't appreciate getting woken up by fucking Michael Stipe. <laughs> I love the way they did that. It reminded me a lot of in Sex Criminals uh, when they were playing pool and they had the song playing over it. It's one of my favorite types of storytelling where people are telling a story but there's music over a line and then they'll just give hints of lyrics that really affect the tone or part of the conversation. It's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, done right. It's awesome. I was very excited. And I think this was done very well. It was. She tells him, I have to turn on the fucking music so that I don't have to hear all these fucking chickens outside. If I have to put up with chicken squawking every day, you have to put up with Michael fucking Stipe. Then he busts open the door and blasts all the chickens. (laughs) Which is then met with a helicopter that pulls out right at that exact same time and a bunch of guys in dark black suits come in and he's like, no fucking way! Tell your cloak and dagger buddies that I'm done killing babies and all that shit I'm fucking retired and they're like sir and they show him the file and he's like oh <laughs> Sydney it's for you <laughs> turns out it's his then we flash back to the dad whose baby's all barfing on him and Sadie comes out and talks about weird dreams about raccoons which she kind of hinted at earlier assassin raccoons that's gonna be awesome I'm like rocket <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know right the baby had puked on dad's shirt so he's like I'm gonna go toss this in the laundry and so she complained about the baby not 
latching. And so she goes to try and then he latches and then bites the shit out of her. First she felt all serene, like, oh, finally something's going right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then it turns out, it's like, that's when I learned that you drank blood. And it's like, little evil baby with blood fang teeth. Baby teeth! <laughs> little Mori eel fangs and, like, black eyes. I kind of thought of more as vampire teeth, really. I mean, not so much in, in that picture, but the next page for the next issue. It looks like a little fucking vampire with black eyes. It was an interesting issue. I'm definitely interested in this one, but it does seem to lag. And this particular one, it seemed to lag quite a bit. I mean, it was it's done well in some. What'd you get? That's one thing that I kind of enjoy about this is that the craziness comes in small spurts. You get so much normal, then you get that interposed with the horror. Oh, touche. Horror needs normality to be terrifying. You know, I think that's what a lot of horror movies forget is they're just like nonstop blood and gore. And they're really more like action movies than horror movies that you need kind of that normal setting so that the horror stands out against it. And this does that really well. I like the pace, really seeing her and you get like a little burst of the reveals always at the end it seems but I like the build of like the thing about the assassin raccoons like I'm intrigued I really want to keep reading because I want to see these freaking assassin raccoons <laughs> the one thing that really bothered me about this I guess unless you've read Twilight or seen the movies and or you're an actual fan <laughs> Boo. The whole part at the end where she's having a baby where she's trying to build up is that she realizes, oh, why is blood sound good? Oh, I need blood because I'm carrying a vampire baby. It had that feeling like the minute she said you want to take it, I'm like, God damn it, it needs blood. God damn yeah. it. I read Twilight. I know it needs blood. The reveal at the end wasn't that big for me. You know, I was just kind of waiting for it to happen. Yeah, they made it obvious. That's the only kind of thing that actually bothered me because I'm like, dude, I already know what's happening. So it wasn't, the big reveal wasn't a big reveal and I don't know if they thought it would be or not, but I saw that <laughs> yeah, definitely was a telegraphed quite a bit. Yeah, right. I also like that she's not very good at telling this story. So in the beginning, <laughs> you get things kind of out of sequence. She's like, oh, wait, that won't make sense until later. And then she starts telling the story in a more linear fashion. I enjoy Let that. Let me backtrack. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. But now that you mention it, yeah, that is a pretty nice little touch. It's very endearing. It's more conversational. Usually when people tell stories, they do not tell it perfectly in a straight line. They jump back and forth and go off on weird tangents. I mean, you've heard our podcast you know how it is <laughs> very true i love tangents they're the best that's probably really why i like this what does your four color nerds business card say your title is i am the instigator of tangent <laughs> <laughs> so true and i love them so i'm all about her storytelling style all right so i think it's about time to rate this up i definitely like this issue it drug a little bit much for me but i do like it i like where it's going i'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out for issue number three i'm going to go ahead and give this three and a half Michael fucking Stipes. <laughs> I will give it four. He is the one true king. I gave it four. He wants you to call him captain. <laughs> So we got more darkness here. More darkness. That's what I want. More unholiness. Well, we got Unholy Grail number one from Image Comics. Perilous, written by Colin Bunn. Pencils and inks by Mirko Kolak. Colors by Santa... Oh, Jesus. Somebody help me out here. I think it's Santa Alala. So this is a take on the King Arthur, Holy Grail, Knights of the Round Table stories. And this one, the basic premise is that Merlin is actually a demon and that he corrupted King Arthur and is using him to bring about hell on Earth. Which is a kind of interesting take on the story. 
story. I mean, we've heard for literally <laughs> over a thousand years. I mean, people have been telling this King Arthur story, so it's hard to come up with a take that's interesting in this one. This one, it starts with Percival has come back with the Holy Grail, and he's come back to England, and it's a fucking nightmare land of people impaled on spikes and dead bodies everywhere. And he's saying, I've been away too long, but now I brought back the Grail, and I can fix everything. So he goes to Camelot, and he finds the round table, which has been destroyed, and all the seats are destroyed except for the Perilous seat. The Siege Perilous, which if you know the stories, that's the seat that Merlin created that was empty until someone returned with the Grail, and they could sit upon that seat and take their rightful place there. So Percival has returned with the Grail, and we'll come back to him. But we get kind of a flashback to what's happened, and it starts out with this demon with no name that has slipped out from hell. This is way in the past here. And Merlin, the human wizard Merlin, is kind of strolling along to go to Uther Pendragon, who's sick, to kind of tend to him and watch over his death. And the demon <laughs> jumps him. <laughs> He's like, who are you? And what is it that makes you not just fucking kill yourself because this world is terrible? And he tells him that he's Merlin. He's going off to tend to Uther Pendragon and not to mess with him because he's the son of the devil. And the demon's like, I know the devil and you're not his son. So he drags him off behind these rocks. And I like the way that they do this because it lets your mind suggest what's happening. But he mm -hmm. kills the shit out of Merlin and then rips his skin off and puts it on him like a skin suit. He's walking around in a Merlin suit. <laughs> It's really creepy. Like the panels they have where he's fitting the skin to his skull because it doesn't fit right at first is fucking creepy and weird. So then he shows up at Uther Pendragon's deathbed and all these knights and nobles are kind of jockeying for position trying to determine which of them is going to be the next king. And Merlin finds out that there's a baby and he figures the baby, when I say Merlin, I mean the demon Merlin now, that the baby would be super easy to manipulate. So he tells them that that's going to be the new king and that he'll watch over him until he's of the age where he can do it and that his father's sword is the first sword of many that he's going to claim. How he did it, it was finger skull puppet peering. He goes <laughs> to the king and he, like you said, he puts his hand on him and sinks his fingers into his skull and marionettes him to pronounce Arthur as yeah. his heir, which is creepy and weird, and immediately kills the king, of course. <laughs> you find out that Arthur has been going around throughout England and killing all of these tribal warlords and stuff who think that they're would-be kings, and then he takes the swords back to the Lady of the Lake, who's a demon spirit of the land, and throws them in the lake as an offering to her. And there's actually this creepy-ass scene where Merlin is asking him for his final sacrifice, who is it you killed to get this sword? And he's like, I don't even remember who I killed for this. And Merlin's like, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Very Mr. Burns-like. They say that Merlin taught him how to be a king, at least a king as a demon understood it to be. So Arthur here is not your knight in shining armor. He's this murderous, twisted, demonic pawn here. And at the very end, you get Percival, who goes to sit on the Siege Perilous because he brought the Holy Grail here. But you find out that that's just a trap that Merlin created that fucking kills him and leaves the Holy Grail lying on the ground with the shadow of Merlin standing over it. I thought it was pretty cool. It was a different take on King Arthur like it was just familiar enough that I understood who all the characters were but that twisting them into being servants of demonic forces and darkness made it interesting to me I thought the art was also pretty good like when it was supposed to be disturbing it was very disturbing I like the underwater scene like with the sword grave underneath the water kind of I like how yeah. that looked yeah that was pretty cool I thought it was interesting the different spin on the whole Arthurian legend the jury's still out on how much I want to see the next one it's interesting but I don't know if it was compelling if that makes any sense I get what you're saying I think this is a very good story that I wasn't asking for. <laughs> 
basically. <laughs> it's one of those ones where it's like, I like I do agree, I did enjoy the artwork. It'll be interesting to see where they're going with it, but let's just say it's not going to be one of my picks of the week, if that makes any sense. So, I'm not going to be like, ah, shit, not this again. So, I don't know, I'm kind of like middle of the road with this guy. When I read the title, I didn't think it was going to be a Pendragon-esque story, so that was kind of a surprise. Sometimes I'm a fan of things walking around in other people's skins, suits. I, I don't know why, I always like, that's what I gravitate towards. I'm like, <laughs> This isn't something that I would gravitate towards or pick. I didn't mind it. It was interesting. It was dark and creepy. It's an interesting twist. I do like things that take typical legends or stories that we know that are as old as time and give it a new retelling of it, as it were. I feel like those are sometimes easier to follow because you have key characters and things about that story that you know. So it helps you jump in and situate yourself into the story quicker than if you're coming to something just fresh. So I think for this one, I will give it three and a half the salvation of england and its king i'll give it three merlin suits <laughs> i'm gonna give it two and a half make the offer kind of middle of the road on this one all right why don't you take us into space Alrighty. all new guardians of the galaxy number five across the universe written by gary duggan pencils and inks by chris samney colors by matthew wilson which you can really tell because <laughs> i like his coloring <laughs> this is a star lord issue you know they've kind of been breaking them up her guardian member except for the beginning where that was a big heist. This is all about Peter and I feel like a lot of it is his love of his music. I like that aspect of it because that's one of the things I really like about Guardians. We start off with him the summer before his mom died and you kind of get a relation of things. The memories that you attach to songs, Mm -hmm. how you grow those attachments. It starts off with that and then it comes back to it at the end and you understand that one song and that one memory to that moment. And then there's a cute little uh, I like. It's like a foot race. He's trying to get a part for Rocket for what Rocket says he needs for that big mech. Because the stories are kind of playing out of sequence. They did that big heist, and then the stories, the last few issues, are stories that follow previous to that heist. So this is a part he needs for that weird Galactus spot. And he's being chased by a Nova Corps member. He gets the dreaded cassette tape unraveling <laughs> that we all, well, not we all, but all of us here have known. Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of on the, the ass end of knowing what that is. <laughs> and I like how the Nova Corps guy called him Stargord. <laughs> Uh, you know damn good and well that's not my name. <laughs> and they kind of have a fisticuff. He kind of looks like, who's the guy that played that Ferengi on Deep Space? Quark. Kind of has that face. That's who this Nova Corps guy looks like he's drawn oh, by. That's true. That's very true. He kind of reminds me of Ron Howard's brother, Clint Howard. <laughs> mm. <laughs> interesting. He's saying, I know, I'm just trying to talk. They have an interesting interaction. It's like, you know, I ruled Spartax, survived the Cancerverse, some rookie with no powers, then being Star-Lord's a big doofus, sticks his foot in the helmet, trips up. And I love that they reference the part where I think Rocket needs this gyroscope or he's just messing around with me because you know, all the times you're like, and I need that leg or that eye from the movie right. where he says he needs stuff that he doesn't actually need. As it is, Quill gets away and he takes off. The Nova Corps officer was trying to recruit him but Peter wasn't really listening he's like well I listen to this broadband on space so if something really dire happens let us know and as he's taking off the Nova agent's like uh well we lost the transport that has Thanos we lost Thanos dude let me know how that works out for you Peter doesn't hear but that in itself is very interesting I'm like ooh, I want to see how that plays out (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is where we get to like the core of what I personally liked. It was a little confusing, I admit, to follow. He gets out his cuffs and you see his collection of cuffs, some of them sexual in nature. His little fuzzy pink handcuffs in the box. His collection he's had to escape from is what it's implied. He does the good old pencil trick to fix his cassette tapes. <laughs> and you see he has those suitcases that hold cassette tapes, like a collection of them, which it shows he's been collecting over the years. And so there's this really neat panel that shows his collection how he's made all his own mixtapes and who they're for and things like that which i thought was really cute as like a music fan i was like "Ooh, i really like that panel yeah. other people might think it's kind of boring no i thought it was really cool oh actually. i loved it i read through each and every single title <laughs> yes me too like he's got this american life with ira glass as one of his tapes mm-hmm. <laughs> mixtape for rocket and then when it's just blondie was i'm like yeah the skankin mix first wave second tone i'm like yeah <laughs> as soon as i saw that one rory i thought of you i'm like oh rory's gonna like that one <laughs> skankin pickle so really if you're a music fan this thing is really cool to look at so we find out there's a really interesting thing how he's basically time traveling he can go to different points in space and they can pick up through like the broadcasting the radio stations from earth and so how music has always been transported through space and so other species have been hearing us at different points at different parts of the universe and he's learned how to jump and where to go to pick up different times so he is on a mission to find a certain era because he needs to replace a tape that he lost that song means something to him and there's interesting like explanation of all that because the weird thing is you need to avoid black holes and some other things he mentioned he gets too close to a spot he wasn't supposed to he gets pulled over or shanghaied by some weird chicken rooster man <laughs> and the weird chubbier not healthier like thanos chin pink looking guy <laughs> but in a russian hat reminds me of a bulldog but he has kind of like a thanos chin going on he does he does have a thanos chin he definitely does thanos without the cardio <laughs> <laughs> He talks his way out of it and they let him go. They also think that Earth's dumb. Peter's talking how he likes analog. Which a lot of you, if you ever talk to like a music file, people, they like analog. It has a better sound. Obviously not cassettes, but his whole reasoning is that feel its wear and its life and you can see it ending. There's something to be said for that pop and crackle. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know now that people have gone to not having physical media, but this is my thing which is i think really brings peter to a modern day level where he's not living like in the boonies he knows but it's his personal taste which i really like that that's addressed yeah but as he's leaving chicken man and thanos chin they're like man humans are dumb they're using physical media and they're like imbeciles they think he's a joke he gets to his little i guess radio sweet spot he pulls out this box and it has a weird like whoa like lines drawn on it like it's something special and it's a box of blanks cassette <laughs> but it's all drawn sparkles like it's the holy grail kind of thing his treasure and just the whole push play and record at the same time button i like his little volume control has an 11 taped on it <laughs> <laughs> very spinal tap good job gary duggan and so he finds it and he's like the reagan era and then we find out that he's tuned into a spot where he's hearing about john lennon's passing they do it now too because when prince passed there was like a prince block of constantly played so when john lennon passed was assassinated they did a a john lennon block of music you know on the radio and so that's what he's recording and it has him floating and it starts playing across the universe which is so fitting for a galaxy universe comic book and it's lennon and it's 80s i don't know i just really felt that all kind of came together really nicely and that was the song that was playing when he was floating in the inner tube and then it shows him floating in space and i just really liked how that came together some of the issues for this new run have been kind of disappointing i really did enjoy this one it hit 
all the right things that I personally like. It might not really been for you guys. I don't know. Let me know. I really liked it. I thought it was a really good insight into Peter. And if you like music and comics, which on this podcast, we definitely like combining the two together, that it really hits on that. I like the idea of having to travel to the spots in space. Because you can see Peter, while he's doing all this crazy stuff, he's also doing all these like calculations. So he's figuring out how fast the sound travels. And at the point where it's not being broken up by black holes and supernovas and stuff like there's one spot in the universe where that can hear that thing thought it was a really good peter quill story that gave you lots of character and insight for him i did think that this is a lot more the movie star lord than the comic star lord that you're starting to see those two kind of meld into each other that there's not such a strong divide between them so i don't know how i feel about that necessarily i definitely think as far as guardians goes it's one of the more comic ones that line between it and the mcu is definitely being blurred the most because i think it was such an obscure series and title before they really think the popularity is all coming from the the movies that they're definitely kind of blurring that but i don't necessarily mind it either because i feel like they're definitely keeping a lot of the comic aspects as well the original but i do see your point honestly this was almost my pick of the week i was really torn and my song would have been the humpty dance just in case you guys (laughs) were curious that was great like ooh, i want to stick around for that but nope (laughs) i thought it was really good it was cool how they caught both typical humor that we come to expect from Guardians of the Galaxy and they had this insight to who Peter is as a character outside of just the jokes and stuff like that. It's like who he is as like a human being and stuff. Like what his passions are. Yes. And I like the fact that it's something we don't often think about but the Earth has been putting out radio signals for about 100 years and that goes somewhere. And so I actually as a space nerd I really enjoyed the fact that they used that reference. The idea that if you could actually travel fast enough that you could actually do that and go back in time on the radio waves which I loved so I thought it was awesome that last panel I want that as a poster I just saw Matthew Wilson and if he had this at his booth I'm like sign that I want that on my wall (laughs) his coloring on here is gorgeous I I had one of the best conversations I've ever had with a comics professional with Matthew Wilson when we were talking about Wicked and Divine because he's the colorist on that as well he's really nice and really smart he was really nice when we met him I mean that's one thing the great thing about that festival is like there are artists and creators there that you have to wait for hours for at any other kind of convention and you could just walk up and talk to them for quite a while not crowded at all it was like a really neat experience but he mostly had wicked divine and paper girl stuff there i want this printed out and like bigger i love this last panel so much but i'm also a huge beatles fan so take that as you will (laughs) the guardians and beatles together awesome i think it's the perfect song for space for here for what they're doing yeah that's the song you heard on the inner tube when they show him floating he's over a round window so it's like he's back in that inner tube like how the two kind of come together that's what i was getting at it's good you want to rate it yeah i'm giving it a five because it just hit all the right notes for me personally i'm giving it five does rocky even really need this gyroscope I will give it three and a half. Nothing's going to change my world. I'm going to give it four and a half. More to come on WECR. You just want the Humpty Dance. <laughs> the Humpty Dance. Dance to do the Humpty uh-uh, Dance. Do the baby. Do the Humpty Dance. Yeah. <laughs> now stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin. The image and the style that you're used to. Once got down in a Burger King bathroom, I'm crazy. I love to amaze thee. I don't know if anybody knows this little piece of music history. <laughs> Humpty is actually an alternate 
personality of Shock G, who is one of the other artists. Shock G, who's one of the other voices that you hear in Digital Underground, he made that character up. And so for years, people did not know that that was actually just a... He would actually have imposters come in on stage when they were doing live performances, and he'd shift back and forth in between them and stuff. Random musical fact. And uh, Tupac Shakur actually got to start with uh, Digital Underground as one of their backup dancers. Interesting. Hmm. Random shit that you don't need to know about, and I'll never make money off of <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as this entire podcast. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, now that we've completely tangentialized, <laughs> let's wrap this bitch up. So, those were the books we read this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast on original streaming media. Cut the cord at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes, on Google Play Music. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds!